So it hasn't been very long at all since we last spoke. No, it was we, we spoke what last Thursday. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been it's been a week. It's been a week. It's been a full on week for me though. I've been busy. Yeah, I've been busy as well. What has been keeping you busy? Oh, all the things: client work, the comic app, more client work. I have not been busy. I've just been waiting for this day to come around. <laughs> Is it Friday yet? No. Oh, it makes me feel better. I've been flat out with also client work, uh, preparing for a deadline uh, to get a build of an app ready for testing with users, which uh, I find is always an interesting process. Do you guys do much testing with users? I try to. Um, I have... As like a small selection of uh, of users that I send the app out to. Um, and this is you distribute it over whatever we've discussed before. With, hockey app with hockey app, I, I distribute it. Yeah, and they install it on their devices and use it, and then tell you about their experience. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I've got one or two that are really good with it, and I've got a I've got several who just won't really contact. But but you know, I get crash reports and stuff like that, which are useful. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. It's definitely. I find, I find the process of releasing apps to lots of people a little bit stressful. The idea that you go from having an app that you've been developing where you, you know you're the only one really using it, and the development team, and then a handful of testers, and then the idea that lots and lots and lots of people in the general public might suddenly start using it, yeah. and finding all of those edge cases you may not have found previously. So, um, having you know, having some beta testers using it beforehand, I think it helps make me feel better because you know there's some potential for them to find those edge cases before it actually gets publicly released. Yep. So but, with 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 ABC, you would have had hundreds of potential testers. Right. Yes. So the um the limitation on beta testers, right, is the slots provisioning profile slots. Um. And at the moment, the developers get 100 device slots per membership year in your provisioning profile. So once you've filled them up, you can't give anyone else a copy of your app to test because uh, you can't add more devices. Did you know you can reset that list once a year? When you're member- On the anniversary of your membership, you get an opportunity to remove devices that you no longer want in your list of devices. And removing them at that point in time will then allow those slots to be filled by other devices in the future. But I think you can remove them throughout the year, but, but it, it doesn't take effect until your anniversary. Right. So yes. it's not like you have, have to, to wait until your anniversary yeah. to remove them. Yeah. But yeah, remove them throughout I, the my year. My first year, I'm like, oh, you know, set a reminder, delete everything, you know, on the day before the anniversary or whatever. <laughs> it's such a frustrating restriction. But um, thankfully, if you've got an enterprise developer account, so the ones that cost $500 a year instead of $100, um, and that are intended for distributing apps in an ad hoc manner to people within your organization, then um, you can use enterprise provisioning profiles that allow you to distribute uh, distribute apps on an ad hoc basis to an unlimited number of devices, so long as they're all owned by people in your enterprise. So with... Um, with Ivy, for example, in the ABC, we were able to test with more than 100 devices because we could do those enterprise builds and distribute it to anyone within the ABC. So I felt a little bit better that it was more than just a handful of people using it before it went into the App Store and had hundreds of thousands of people using it. Still a big 
shift from hundreds to hundreds of thousands. Um, and there were certainly bugs we didn't find through that first lot of testing. The shift when you go from like, like a handful of people to, you know, production, because, Mm. um, like in the, like in my experience with progressions, right? Um, I'll test it. And then even though I, like, I, I iron out everything and it seems to work fine through the, but through, you know, a week or two of beta testing, um, inevitably I'll send it out into the public and I'll get, you know, three or four crashes a day, uh, from various different things that I'd never even yeah, considered exactly. looking at because it was, uh, like a, a case where I'd, you know, an edge case essentially. Yeah. Um, I actually did some maths with IVU and thought about the, um, person hours of app in use. So by the end of like the first day that it was released, um, I think there were, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of downloads. I can't remember. Maybe not in the first day. I can't remember when I did this maths. But you sort of add it up about, um, the session time per user and the number of users. And you just realize that in a day, you've just got, you know, a, a huge number of, of combined person hours of use. A lifetime. Mm. Um, which you just, there's no way you could use it for that much time, uh, in any sort of testing. So there's always going to be a greater opportunity for people to find those bizarre edge cases. Yeah. Um, but the sort of testing I'm actually, been working flat out this week to get ready for is um less of that uh sort of beta testing where you just distribute it to people um over the air but more the sort of testing where you give a device with the app on it to someone and sit there and watch them use it have you guys done that before i haven't i've never done that it's you, pretty cool you put little like goggles on their face or something well so with track I, eyeballs yeah with i actually did do eye tracking um and that was awesome so was we, it helpful yeah, it was surprisingly, I was really, I went into it quite cynically, sort of. We did it maybe a two, two third point through development of the iPad version. Um, so we'd already made a fair few design decisions and, um, assumptions about how the app would be used. And so part of me was thinking, Oh, this is a bit of a waste of time. We're not really going to learn that much from it. We're just going to confirm what we already know. Um, but nonetheless, it was a really interesting exercise. So we sat in, um, behind one of those, they call two way mirrors, aren't they? But it's a one way. You know, where you get to look through a window and a, to a fishbowl of people who think that there's just a mirror behind them. Yeah. No. Just so happens to be a mirror. Yes. That's like the length really, of the wall. Really large the length yeah. of the wall and, uh, in, in a place where there was no other mirrors. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so we, so we sat there for a day with watching different people come in and sit down and, wow. and run through a, a, um, test. And the test was basically, uh, spend some time exploring the app. And then once you'd done that, uh, there were a couple of tasks we asked people to do, like pick a particular show, um, one that was somewhere on the on the first screen that you look at, and then one that we required you to browse by genre to find it and things like that. And um, and yeah, they did have these little glasses that the people would wear, and they had cameras looking at the eyes, and then they had it hooked up to some software so that the end result was a video of showing you what the person was looking at with a little kind of red dot or line moving around on overlaid on top of the video showing you exactly where their eyes were focused at each point in time. Um, and it was really, really interesting seeing like there was one, uh, I don't know what it was. There was like um, a button in the toolbar at the top of the screen. Uh, so the toolbar had a, an iView logo and then a button next to that, which was, I think where you select the genres from 
And so the task where people were asked to uh, select a genre, the number of times you just look, you'd be able to see exactly where they were looking because you could see all of this in real time. And you're going, they, they, well, how can they not see that button? Their eye just jumped straight to the logo that's right next to the button and then jumped straight across the button to the buttons on the right-hand side of the toolbar and then went back to the logo. And like, how have they twice, their eyes have skipped across this location where the button is and they're not landing on it. And I think it was probably because it was tucked too closely to the logo, which was really graphical and grabbing people's attention. And I think we ended up refining it a bit by moving it further away. Um, so just little things like that. It was, it was fascinating. But even without eye tracking stuff, I find it just really informative. Just hand a device with the app on it to someone who hasn't seen it before and say, can you do whatever? Um, so that's what, yeah, I've been working on getting a build ready of uh, an app that's for kids to use. And we're going to do some testing with um, preschoolers over the weekend and next week. Um, and testing with preschoolers is also very interesting. I can imagine. They do the funniest things. Actually, there's a, uh, there was a session at last year's Swipe conference, uh, where some of my colleagues from former colleagues from the ABC talked about their experiences testing apps with kids. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if it's available anywhere. I'm not sure that it is yet. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that's been my week getting ready for some testing. So will, will this be formal testing or will you be, you know, finding some friends with preschoolers or? Or will you just be hanging out down at the local public school? <laughs> okay, that last one mine works a well. <laughs> I might get some funny looks. I'll come but... with you if you want. <laughs> You've got the beard. Kids really like the beard and just, stuff. Uh, just make sure that you guys get, get trench coats. That, that's an important uh, part of the testing process. Steering well, well clear of this discussion. Uh, <laughs> it'll be somewhere between formal. So I don't think um, really, really formal user testing works particularly well with preschoolers. Um, but with their parents, you can sort of say, uh, these are the things we want you to, to explore. Um, give, you know, ask them to give the app to their kids and ask a couple of questions about it and more, um, relying on the parents to observe what's going on. Um, and so it'll be a combination of, um, people involved in the project team uh, who have kids and, and yeah, just trying it out. So semi formal testing, uh, writing up the results and sort of thinking about whether we need to change anything. Cool. Hmm. Busy week. Very busy. So do we have uh, do we have follow up this week? Right. Yes, I've got some. Do you have some? Not really. You've got some though. I think I think I have some. About uh, last week, we talked about bit masks. Well, yeah. The uh, the only follow up I've got from that is that uh, that was well received. So we should we should uh, do that more often. We could talk about bitmasks again today, if you want. Well, I don't, I don't know that they want to hear about the same thing over and over again. Well, bri- briefly, um, there were a couple of questions, Caleb, you had last week that I didn't know the answer to, and I know a little more this week. Uh, I think one, you said, is there a limit to how many flags you can set or how many different options you could combine in the bitmask? And yes, the limit is the number of bits in the data type that, the mask is stored in. So in my case, I was using an NS, an unsigned integer, which I think is a 64-bit number, meaning it can represent 64 bits. So the limit would be 64. 
Very good. See, maths. Is there a is there an easy way to remember that? Uh, no. So if it's 64 bits, the limit's 64. Exactly. That's the easy way. You just got to sort of remember that. That bit. Okay. So if you're using a 32-bit number, the limit would be 32. Okay. Um, I don't I don't know that you'd ever really come up. I reckon if you're using a bit mask with 64 options, that maybe that's not quite the right data type. Yeah. That doesn't seem feasible. Although some of the built-in ones have quite a few options. But I don't think any anyone of them gets... That. Anywhere near yeah, like 64. 64. Uh, and you also had another question about if there's an easy way of determining what the next uh, integer number for the next sort of bit in the bit mask would be. Um, and yes, apparently, instead of using an integer to, um, so you, you can set up the values that you want to be able to combine in your bit mask as a numerated type, and you can specify the actual value for each of the in types in your numerator type as an int, or you could actually just specify it as a hexadecimal number, or... Oh, that'd be good for jelly. Yeah, you could use a hexadecimal. Uh, or you can use a bitwise operator to manipulate an integer. So um, the, there's a bitwise shift operator, which is a double less than sign, which tells you to shift the significant bit of the number over to the left one. So if you wanted to... Uh, know what the next um, value in your list of options in your bitmask should be. You just shift the most significant bit over one, I think. That's my understanding of it. I don't really understand it properly. I'm just passing on some feedback I had about the answer to that question. And that's that's all I got to follow up. Excellent. I did some accessibility work on my last app. So let's hear about it. What did you do? Tell me about accessibility for iOS apps. How, what is it? How well, does I, it work? I, I've never done it. So I, I decided with Cutefruit, I'm going to do it from the beginning and just, you know, Cutefruit's so simple anyways, you know, adding accessibility to that would be a 10 minute job. And it was, it was a 10 minute job. The, the hard part about it was just figuring out how to, you know, turn it on, figuring out, you know, what the basic standard standards are for it. Um, but in terms of actually implementing it, nothing to it. Yeah. So I I'm using Interface Builder, which probably makes it a little bit easier. Maybe yeah, not. Potentially. I don't know. I guess so it's probably worth jumping back a step and talking about what, what we is. mean by accessibility. Because um, I was a bit surprised to discover that um, iPhones and iPads are amongst the most accessible computing devices ever made. And that kind of came as a huge surprise to me because, um, like, you know, accessibility basically means making um, making it possible to interact with a computing device through alternative means of input and output for people with disabilities or impaired vision or hearing uh, or impaired motor skills, whatever. Um, and I guess, you know, if you think about things like uh, if you're dealing with users that have impaired vision, when I first think about that and what it would be like to interact with something like the iPhone, it just seems like it would be a recipe for disaster. You know, iPhone is like a featureless plane of glass. There's, you know, um, there's all of these things in the physical world designed to improve the accessibility of the physical world for people with impaired vision, like um, the little grooves on the J and F keys on the keyboard. 
Yeah. So the, like a physical bump on those keys so that as you're resting your hands on the keyboard, you don't have to be able to see what you're doing to know where your hands are located. And then from there, it relies on the fact that all of the other keys are laid out in the same way in relation to, you know, the keys, the other keys on the keyboard. And you can rely on that. It's consistent. It's always the same. Um, the iPhone doesn't have any physical bumps on it to get your bearings. And you can't rely on things on the iPhone screen being in a certain position relative to anything else on the screen because the whole screen changes completely from one app to the next. I mean, that was kind of the whole design of the iPhone was that, um, you know, and that was the whole breakthrough was, was this suddenly um, the device disappears and you're interacting with whatever app is on the screen at the time. So you launch the calculator app and you're interacting with the calculator. You launch you know, GarageBand and you're interacting with a keyboard. Um, you know, the, the, there's no physical keyboard and there's no, um, no, nothing that kind of is always, always present. So that seems like a recipe for disaster for people who have impaired vision. Uh, except it's not, right? The, uh, OS comes with a bunch of features designed to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Um, probably the one that developers deal with most directly is voiceover. So it's got a screen reader that'll read to you what's on the screen. So when voiceover is enabled, putting your finger on the screen um, will cause voiceover to tell you what's under your finger. And if you move your finger around, uh, it'll read out to you the elements that your finger moves across. Um, and it also changes the interaction mode so that um, you can use a single swipe left to right on the screen to move from user interface element to user interface element. So even if there are small user interface elements that are arranged quite far apart physically on the screen, it doesn't rely on you being able to see that. Um, you can just use a left to right swipe to, move, say, take, take give focus to the next interface element, whatever it is, and then VoiceOver will read it out. Um, so that's there's a bunch of other kind of features of iOS to make it more accessibility. There's like a screen zoom of you guys. They, I actually use that not for accessibility purposes, but just for design to like look at how people have realized or achieved particular effects. I don't use that at all. Um, I think one time you turned it on during a like I was trying to d demonstrate a thing that I had done and I couldn't figure out how to how turn it, it off. <laughs> it's great. So uh, it's all, all of these are available through the settings app. Um, there's a section on accessibility. And um, once Zoom is turned on, uh, you double tap on the screen with three fingers. And after the second tap, you leave your three fingers sitting on the screen. And if you slide them up, it zooms in. And if you slide them down, it zooms out and it will just zoom the whole screen. So developers don't have, have to have done anything for users to use Zoom to be able to interact with content in your app. So it's kind of like a fail safe. Like if the developer has put no thought into accessibility at all, like there's no settings to increase font size or there's no, you know, um, then users can at very least use that to zoom everything. And in which case um, the iPhone or iPad screen is just showing a, a small window onto the actual full screen of content and you can pan around with three fingers to so and people buttons are still pressable and yeah everything is still yeah um and so it's it's for people who have some vision um but need to things to be super magnified to be able to read them uh, so there's a bunch of things like that there's high contrast mode there's a um a setting which will increase the font size of some text in some apps like large font mode if you turn that on 
some of the built-in apps will display their text larger, um, inconsistently so, though. Some mm. of the text will still be normal size. Um, but, yeah, the voiceover is the one where um, it requires developers to do something. Uh, so if you give you all of your user interface elements uh, accessibility labels, then voiceover will read those out uh, when it's describing the user interface elements. Um, if you haven't given them accessibility labels, then it'll just do its best. Uh, and in some cases... If, you, if, it, if you're using pretty standard UI elements, it does a pretty good job. Yeah, so. yeah. Like labels, yeah, table view cells and labels in table view cells and things are fine. The Where, where it falls down is where you're using images as um, el- elements people can interact with. And I, by default, I think reads out the image file name. Thought it just said button, but it might. Oh, so if you're using a button with a background image, then it just, it, it just says button. And so you know you you'd be going across button, button, yeah, button, button. Which which button. one of these will delete my content? Which one of them will save it? Um, but if you're using an image and you've got like user interactions enabled, um, or you've got a gesture recognizer on the image, uh, it'll just read out the image file name. Yeah. So you know, I don't know something underscore button large but two x yeah. Um, so, you know, the thing that as developers you can do is to add uh, an accessibility label to the elements. That's, so is that the process you went through for Cute Fruit? Yes. Fantastic. So in Xcode, there's a spot because when I did this the last, I used did it programmatically. Didn't use Xcode. Yes, in Xcode uh, on the right sidebar, um, there's a space where you can, what is it? I think it's uh, the button label whether accessibility is on or not so you can just turn it off for an element and then also the hint <laughs> i don't think you've talked about the hint yet but no you- so so the first two is um whether accessibility is on or not is important is a good one right um because it may be so i guess the process i had in um making iview for example accessible uh the bulk of the work wasn't in giving specifying accessibility labels for interface elements. The bulk of the work was in thinking about the experience of using the app without looking at it. Um, and part of that was thinking about it. So we did this late in the, in the piece, um, after the visible user interface was pretty well finalized. And so it was looking at the visible user interface we had and thinking about, well, how does that translate when you're not looking at it, but you're having it read to you? Um, and there were certain things that just didn't make sense. Certain things that, um, for example, we use this metaphor of cards to represent episodes of a show. And if you wanted to get more details about those episodes, you'd flip over the card to look at the back. Um, and it would flip all the cards in the series over at once so that you could then just go from the back of one card to the back of another. And that kind of really relied on you being able to see that all of these cards are flipped when you trigger that mode. Um, and so it's, you know, certain, yeah, the pro the process might be that you would may decide that certain interface elements actually only make sense for a visible interface, and that the best experience um, for someone that's not looking at the interface would be to actually just disable that interacting with that element. Um, in which case, turning it off. In so uh, programmatically, you can say whether user interaction is enabled for accessibility, and there's also a button. Tick box. Button, 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 
buttons. Yeah. Buttons. <laughs> buttons. Yeah, and, yeah. And then the other is uh, adding the um, actual <coughs> accessibility um, text that you want voiceover to read out for each element. Um, and then the trait uh, that you talked about or the hint, um, you can specify a bunch of things about a user interface element, such as whether or not it is a button, whether or not it um, causes media playback to occur, or I can't remember them off the top of my head, but the idea is that um, by adding this extra information to your user interface elements, it lets voiceover, gives voiceover more context about what interacting with that element will do. Right. So you can specify what that element is. So you can say it's an image, it's a button. And sometimes you might be using, say, in your app, you might be using a button, but it's really a, a link to an external website or something like that. Yeah. So, so interface builder is going to say that's a button. So you can override that within the accessibility saying, saying, no, actually this is a link. Yeah. Um, so that will give a little bit more of a hint to the user that, you know, they're going somewhere else. Mm. But aside from that, there's a third element that you can specify, which is an actual, uh, it's a, I think it's a hint. I think, I think what we're describing is the trait, but you can, yeah. you can have a hint as well, which is, is a longer piece of text that I don't, I don't know if you included it. No. It's a longer piece of text that will tell them what this is going to do. Okay. So you could say in yours, you could say tapping here will flip over the cards to show you more information. Yeah. It will flip over all the cards just so you know. There you go. Okay. So I didn't, hadn't used hints previously. Um, in fact, the changes, so we did, going back to our earlier discussion about testing, um, I think one of the most important things about making an app is accessible is to test the accessibility of it. Um, and the best way to do that is to give it to someone who has impaired vision, if that's what you're, um, trying to, to, to address. Um, and ask them to use it and give you feedback. And so that's what we did with iView, was we um, identified a user who was really interested in testing the accessibility, um, and he was vision impaired, um, couldn't see anything, uh, and got him to use the app. And his feedback was actually mainly about uh, having the spoken interface be less verbose. Yeah. So I'd, my initial instinct was to have the app read out everything that you could see, um, and even... In some ways, it was the spoken interface was better than the visible interface. So in some um, areas, the space available for displaying, say, the title of a, an episode of a particular show was so constrained that you had to use an ellipsis to truncate the end of it. So you, for the visible interface, you could only see the first part of the show's title and then it would dot, dot, dot. Um, whereas you don't have that constraint with the spoken interface, so you can just, you know, whilst... You may be truncating content in the visible one. Uh, with the spoken one, you may actually choose to have the accessibility label be uh, not only the full title, but the full title plus some extra information. And so that was my first um, instinct was to do that. And then he used it and, and said, this is just way too verbose. When I'm going through episodes, I have to wait a long time. But I think I was it was repeating the series and episode numbers yeah. before the episode title. So it was going... You know, Doctor Who series seven, seven episode seven. two. Then the title. Oh yeah. God, I don't think I can remember the title oh, of that particular episode. <laughs> there you go. Uh, whereas he's just saying, just give me the title. Yeah, uh, you really need to front load all the essential information. 
because if you see someone actually using it, they just wait till the very point where they get the information they need and then skip on to the next one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of saying, this is a button that allows you to view your profile, you have to say profile. Yeah. And then you can, and you, you can right, put, you may even just hear pro. And yeah. That'd be you can put additional, button. you can put additional at the end of that because they've already skipped it by that point. If it's not the button that they yeah. need, so just put it at the front. Is that what you did with the ABC app then? Yeah, it is. We sort of refined it all. Not so much. We, we just truncated a lot of stuff and right. just, just left it off. Um, yeah. And I did other little things. I don't know whether it matters like, um, trigger video playback the vi- the visible button says watch episode um and i was sort of thinking well if you can't see is that a little bit offensive to suggest that you're going to be watching something so we changed it so that the spoken interface says play episode that's good um, you know just thinking of just like i really enjoyed that process of thinking about a spoken interface like just sort of saying okay well if i'm not looking at this what's the what is a nice way of interacting with it having it read it to me um and it kind of got me thinking about this issue separately from that of accessibility, of just thinking about different ways of interacting with software. And then Siri came out subsequent to when I was doing this work um, and has made me even think even more about this, you know, that um, the way that we currently interact with a lot of our software is by looking at screens and using keyboards or mice or our fingers to interact with visible elements on screens. But I think that that's changing and I'm sure there'll be more and more different ways of representing information and different ways of getting user input, um, some of which will make all of this stuff accessible to more people, um, but and some of which, you know, those sort of design issues of thinking about what's the best way of designing a spoken interface or, uh, you know, will be relevant to everyone. Indeed. Well, you just have to look at Star Trek. Computer, where is Commander Riker? Commander Riker is in 10 forward. There you go. Or Find My Friends does that. Do you know you can do that with Siri? Can you? Yeah, look, look. I'll do it now. Where is Caleb? It's not going to work. Oh. (laughs) I've already unfriended you. Oh, you unfriended me. Find My Friends is creepy. Yeah. If, uh, if Caleb had not unfriended me on Find My Friends, it would tell me where he is. Oh well, but you know the the science fiction is filled with uh, with examples of you know voice uh, interfaces. But at this stage, yeah, we're we're very focused on visual stuff. But and I think I think part of the reason is because we as uh, like as people who haven't got vision impairment, we don't think about. Uh, we don't think about the fact that, you know, people who don't have vision, you know, how would they use it? Yeah. Mm. Like you ha- it's a conscious thing that you have to think about. Yeah, definitely. You can't just, you can't just assume that that's kind of like that it's going to work fine for everybody. Yeah. Um, and like visual, like your visual sense, right, is 2D. So you, it's a lot easier to have, uh, to have less noise and ha- have things kind of just sitting off to the side, right? But you can't have that in sound because sound is is a single dimension it's it's just it's linear like you can't um so if you if you're layering a whole bunch of stuff on top of each other it it just becomes noise Mm. um and you got to think about okay so how 
how does this work if I have to lay this interface out in a single, essentially a single dimension? Mm. Uh, and that, it, that, that, that's really the question. So you, you have to, but you have to make a, a conscious, conscious decision and conscious effort to do that. I think. Yeah, definitely. And that would, I think, I think we'll go back to my initial advice about the importance of testing is, uh, with all of this, especially when thinking about accessibility, uh, if, if you don't know someone personally with, uh, impaired vision, then in Australia, at least there are, um, sort of organizations, uh, like Vision Australia is one, um, where if you get in touch with them, um, they're quite happy to sort of recommend people who might be interested in testing something. Right. Um, sure. The same exists elsewhere in the world. Um, but failing that, just uh, try using the device yourself uh, without looking at it. So yeah, close, um, close your eyes. Yeah, exactly. And you can configure the home button on your device so that a triple tap will toggle voiceover on and off. So I've kind of always got that set in that mode. And it just makes it really easy to quickly put voiceover on and then have a go at interacting with the device like that. And um, I think it's important not just to interact with your own app when when you're doing that, but to, to spend some time interacting with other apps to get a sense of what are the um, conventions of the spoken interface. Because we're all familiar as uh, people who don't have impaired vision looking at um, all of the apps we use all the time. We've come to learn the conventions of the platform about where we expect certain things to appear. Um, I think the same probably exists in voiceover spoken interfaces, that there are ways of doing things. Um, so I'd recommend starting with Apple's apps because they've done a good job of having a consistent experience across like Safari and Mail and Calendar and whatever, um, and then have a look at some third-party apps as well. And um, you might be surprised by how many don't have accessibility stuff at all. And then um, also you might be surprised to find some that are doing a really good job. Uh, cute fruit. Check but that one out. I think most likely you'll find apps that do have it because it's on by default, right. but it's just really poorly done. Yes, yeah, so they've got, because they haven't thought which about is it. probably worse than not having it at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think more and more developers are becoming aware of this issue. I think people have spoken about it, and also, um, the like the whilst we're talking about um how much thought can be given to this, um, really, the basics of just labeling the elements you've already got in your visible UI takes like 10, 15 minutes to go through and add accessibility labels. Um, so to not do that is kind of a crappy thing uh, to do. Um, so, you know, encourage everyone to at least go through and put accessibility labels on everything. Then if, if you want to go further, spend some time using apps with uh, voiceover turned on and see what it's like to use yours with just that minimum effort and then start thinking through about how... Um, how you can go further than that. And the techniques you might use in going further are things like there's a... So all of this is in the UI Accessibility API. So if you search the docs, UI Accessibility is the name of it. And there's an API that lets you detect whether voiceover is enabled or not. And so you might do things um, like you can choose whether or not specific user interface elements are enabled or disabled for accessibility. But you can also do things like check if accessibility, if voiceover is currently turned on, potentially do things different, slightly differently in your app. Um, so in the case of iView, we removed some, like one of the things VoiceOver does poorly, unless you take steps to prevent it, is um, it mightn't read out elements on the screen in a logical order. It kind of reads them out based on their physical positioning. Top, bottom, left, right. Yeah. And that, 
in the case of um, iView, that meant, for example, um, it would start reading the title of a certain episode, and then it would go to the description of the previous episode. Yeah. Um, because they were kind of those views were peers, uh, and they were the yeah description was kind of slightly visible of the previous episode. Um, so I used a technique of detecting whether voiceover was on, and if voiceover was on. I only displayed a single episode on the screen at one time so that voiceover wouldn't be confused. Um, the APIs have actually improved since then, and there are now accessibility kind of containers. I think there are APIs that allow you to group things together and to say, um, you know, the title and description of these things belong together. Um, and there's also ways you can um, indicate that uh, you've triggered a kind of modal view within your app. So you might um, use techniques to kind of obscure part of your visible interface by like drawing a semi opaque view over top of some of the things on on the screen and having others that are still kind of brightly lit up um, and prior to the changes to the accessibility API um, voiceover wouldn't know that the elements that were being partially obscured shouldn't be read out, read out. Um, but now you're, there are ways of sort of saying that saying I've triggered this modal view and now you should only focus on this part of the view and things like that Indeed. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to go look at UI accessibility. Um, you 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 would have uh, a, a selection of articles that you could probably we could yeah, probably link people definitely. to. Uh, so I've given a couple of presentations or the same presentation a couple of times. Uh, there is, I think, a video of me giving it somewhere and uh, a slide deck. So happy to point to those. If you yeah, Google yeah. for iOS accessibility, it might just be right on the front page there. There you go. Really? Oh yeah. Probably if you're Googling in Australia, I think they weight things geographically. So if you're outside Australia and you Google iOS accessibility, I think you get Matt Kemmel and uh, other luminaries. The other, in Australia, the, other benefit, the other benefit is of using accessibility in your app is by the end of it, you know how to spell accessibility. <laughs> uh, yeah, accessibility. It's a long word. Oh, yes. If you don't like, uh, if, if you're not a fan of the uh, the really long methods and stuff in in uh, Objective C, then you probably won't enjoy writing out accessibility several hundred times. Right, but you know, our IDE is designed to make things like that easy. Yes, that's true. It is that. it is like the first thing in the list. You 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 know, as it, when you when you get the little drop down of uh, suggested things as you're typing, uh, it's like you know the top ten, fifteen. Indeed, Google. Indeed. Google does a good job correcting it too. He's just like A, C, something or other. B, Y. I'll show you what you mean. Hey, speaking of things that do a good job of providing shortcuts, uh, uh, have we got time for another quick little topic? We do, yep. Uh, so I, um, I've just come across a bunch of Xcode plugins. Do you guys use any plugins? No. I use I because I, I use Dash for my um, documentation. documentation stuff, um, and so it has a plugin which is so. Uh, tell me about Dash. Average. That was in my list. The topic I wanted to discuss was little tools and tricks that shortcuts that make things the process of writing code easier. So Dash was in that list. Yeah. So so Dash about. Dash is a documentation uh, browser, I guess. Uh, basically, what it does is uh, it. 
it, it brings together documentation for various different uh, languages. So Objective-C is one of them, but you can have like PHP and a whole bunch of different stuff mm. in there, which is handy for me because I, I write several several languages, uh, you know, JavaScript, PHP, that sort of so stuff. So it's one place to go for looking stuff up rather than having to go to the yeah. um, Xcode <clears throat> organizer documentation tab for Objective-C. Yeah, and having, yeah. having the organizer open all the time. Yeah. Um, and it just means that I can use the organizer for other stuff while still having documentation on the screen. So I've come close to installing Dash a couple of times um, because I like the idea of constantly looking stuff up. Um, and some of the time I find myself, I use uh, Alfred. I use Alfred all the time. So sometimes I just type a class name into Alfred and nice. go to the ref, you know, the first link in Google will be. Um, yep, usually. Usually. Uh, Depending then, on how, yeah. how you search for it. And then you usually have to look through two or three Stack Overflow posts before you find the actual class reference yep. below that. Um, or I will use the option key in Xcode and turn my cursor into a question mark and then click on the class and it will take me to the reference for that class within Xcode's organizer. Right. Um, and I kind of wonder what Dash does for me if I'm using those techniques. So Dash, um, Dash has a plugin for Xcode that allows you to hook into the... Um, into, into the option. Click. Right, Click. so instead of using Xcode's organizer's documentation Yeah, so tab, it completely skips dash. that. Yeah. Um, the downside to that is that uh, it because it's not limited to uh, not limited to what you're looking at, it's not quite as smart as, as Xcode's one. So if you right-click on a like a property that's, you know, color or something, then what you'll end up getting is a search result like list of oh, right. like of other color stuff that isn't necessarily limited to what you're specifically looking for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's the downside. But I find that you know, I, I mean, I've I've just learned to work around that by uh, finding finding the class names and specifically clicking on uh, op- option clicking on those, and then you know I can browse it. And it, it it's exactly the same. Once you get in there, it's exactly the same as uh, yeah. as the built-in documentation. Yeah. And actually, that um, that brings up another topic, but we'll, we'll continue so on this first. On other uh, shortcut plugin things, um, yep. one that uh, was recommended to me recently was a uh, I can't remember the name of the plugin off my head. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but it's a plugin that will autocomplete uh, image names in Xcode when you're doing UI image image with name. Oh, nice! That would be named. really useful. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's cool. So it'll um, you do image name colon, and then it will just bring up a list of all the images in your project. And then you start typing and it filters that list down to the ones that match what you're typing. And it shows you both the image and the name of the image in line kind of. Oh, really? As part wow. of the that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it is awesome. Um, made things so much faster. But I'm kind of also, I've been suspicious about plugins because I worry. Uh, so Apple don't publicly document the Xcode's plugin API and, and give documentation about how to create a plugin or it's not something that's really explicitly supported. Right. Um, so it kind of worries me a little bit. Like, it seems like there's a lot of work involved in kind of guessing about how to integrate your plugin with Xcode. And I just kind of sometimes worry about the fragility of whether my IDE is going to start getting buggy and crashy because I'm installing uh, other plugins. Well, as so long far, as, they're, as, long as they're not like modding uh, core Xcode files. As long as they're not, you know, making changes to the actual application, mm. then there's no reason why it would get uh, super buggy. And ideally, you'd be able to 
just remove them. Just remove them if you need need to. So I think uh, you can easily just remove them. They just uh, end up going in library application support as a separate sort of bundle that's loaded at runtime. So if um, if you just remove it uh, from your application support directory, it unloads the bundle. Um, There's a few others as well that uh, uh, people have suggested. So UI color ones that will show a color picker in the line. So you can just uh, pick a color visually. And then it will generate the code for you. So I use a separate I use a separate color picker in, that uh, that generates the the UI color little code snippet. Right. So that I have to app. essentially copy and paste because I work in uh, yeah I, I do work in Photoshop and I do work in in you know, yeah. HTML and I do work in uh, Xcode and you know all the different variations of how color is represented. Yeah, exactly. I it's have to keep switching stuff so it makes it a little bit more difficult yeah I'm not, most of the time when I'm dealing with colors I'm looking at Photoshop documents that a designers passed to me yeah so the no, the normally that's and- normally that's hexadecimal without uh, without a hash is in you can enter that in, into Photoshop like to just copy and paste one single value all oh, right yeah using a hexadecimal in Photoshop without a hat without the you know yeah. the starting hash and so then you've just got a UI color category that creates a UI color with yeah. So that. what I've got is I've got a picker that you pick the color from on screen of what you want. Yeah. Uh, and it will it will essentially create the string of the the UI color color with, with red, red green, green blue, blue uh, alpha. Yeah. And uh, I can then it essentially then copies that directly to the clipboard, or I would have to go and copy it myself. Yeah. Cool. Like I can select it from the list uh, in the in the menu bar, yeah. and, uh, and then I can just paste that into the document where I want it. Um. Yeah. So I, I mean, for in the case of uh, progressions, because I use that sort of thing quite heavily in in some of my applications where I'm dealing with uh, customizing the interface a lot. Mm. Um. And so in order to keep the same kind of colors uh, acro- across the app, so I'm not having to, if I decide that I yeah, want to use slightly slide. different shade of that particular green or something, right? Yeah. Uh. Rather than using uh, rather than basically having that code in a bunch of different places, places, I don't repeat yourself. Isn't that a maximum? yeah? So what I do is I create a category on UI color because yeah. you normally when with UI color you have like the little methods that have and like white color, red, red color, color, white color, yeah. you know, dark gray color. Yeah. Uh, so I create I create my own on that, uh, which you know for for my own purposes. So I'll have something like um, done button background color. Oh, good. So you use semantic names for your color because I use that exact same technique. Yep. Except I was using color names. So, for example, on iView there was a UI color category that was called iView Green or something, um, and it was a like bright green highlight color. And I think at one stage, just before launch, there was some an idea that it might change to orange. Like the iView brand was being redone across all platforms, and like it's now going to be orange. Yep. And so. I'd only define the color in one spot, uh, so I could go in and just change my implementation of iView light green category to return orange instead. It looked, it, anyway, they decided not to go with it, and they stuck with green, so my method name and the color match each other. But since then, I've tried to use like iView high, visual, visual highlight color. Yeah. Uh, and then it could be green or red or whatever. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah well, I, I find that... I mean, there are some, some semantic ones that are in... Uh, that are built into UI color anyway, because there's the like the scroll background stuff. So you know yeah. the the linen uh, the linen 
pattern and the uh, the the one that's behind the the uh, the table view cells with the pinstripes. Yeah. Um. You can you can pull them out as as colors. Uh. Using using uh semantic uh named color yeah. uh methods. Um. So it's like dark scroll view background color or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. So I just kind of follow that sort of uh pattern. that that sort of yeah. pattern with with when I'm naming naming those names. And it yeah. also means that uh, if you use a UI color category, you can override those particular ones. So you can continue to use those ones in your app if you need to while you're doing the original this the initial development. Mm-hmm. And then when once you come around to actually uh once you come around to actually you know putting putting a skin on the app or or you know changing changing the look of the app it's a lot easier for you to uh to to make changes to that mm. uh, as well mm. so i'd be interested to hear from any listeners if you've got a favorite xcode plugin that makes your life a lot easier yeah uh, let us know um yeah i've started using this image name one and uh it's awesome yeah absolutely i'm going to install it when i get home yeah. So uh, just just before we f- finish up, um, did you guys see the the new thing that came out from the the guys behind CocoaPods this week? I did not. I thought you were going to say the new thing that came out from Panic because I saw that one. Well, I've got that. It's not my. It, it crashes overnight, unfortunately. So that's a that's oh, a bug. Dear. Panic guys, it's a crash. Uh, anyway, so uh, but the the thing from CocoaPods right uh, is something called Coco Docs. I can't believe you haven't heard of this. No, yet. Oh, look, it's been a busy week. Okay, so uh, so we, we all know what Coco Pods is, right? We've we've talked about this yeah, uh, at I least a couple this, of times. This is becoming the Coco Pods podcast. We are we're just basically here to talk about Coco Pods. Yeah. Uh, so Coco Docs is a documentation browser oh, cool. uh, that works in a similar way to how Coco Pods does, uh, and it may actually utilize some of the Coco Pods stuff in order to get it done because you can actually pull up. So, for example, as I talked about last week uh you know I, I released the open source library for you know quite 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 keyboard keyboard uh you, you yeah uh so uh but you know i didn't i didn't put any documentation in there because i uh, yeah, it, most of the stuff is is fairly straightforward anyway it's you know and and i have like a, a couple of paragraphs that basically tell you how to implement it and that's really it doesn't really get much more complex than that at this stage um so rather than generating any documentation i just kind of left it that and and put it out there and and we'll deal with that you know when i when i start to work on it again because mm-hmm. i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to add accessibility stuff oh don't tell anybody yeah you will yeah um i i, I haven't even i didn't even put any thought into that uh <laughs> well, if, you because using, I, if they're UI buttons and yeah. they have a well, I think label, I think they're using the custom, an additional label. They're not using the de- the default label on the on the oh, button okay. because I've got to move it around. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so CocoDocs, yes, that's the right name. CocoDocs, uh, basically, what it does is it pulls in uh, it pulls in the projects uh, from GitHub automatically and generates the documentation. So it's a single repository, like a single source place for pulling in uh, open source like uh, documentation for open source libraries. So it has cool. AF networking in there and it's all in a, uh, in a sim- like a single looking, like a Does it interface. Does it use the, the doc uh, set file format that Apple's documentation comes in or does it use? I think it's, uh, so it looks, it looks kind of the same as Apple's documentation, but yeah. it's got like a CocoaPods style, you know, color well. brown kind of colors to yeah. it. Uh, 
it, I have to check it. Like I, I haven't used it uh, significantly yet because I have, uh, between when it came out and and now I've mostly been uh, doing client work, client web work. Uh, but um, it it like my initial looking at it is really it's really really useful. So what it's uh, like I, I immediately the first thing that I did was see if keyboard was in there and it was. Oh, cool! Uh, it had pulled keyboard in and and generated so it pulled documentation out, like, for the it. comments. Doc, create documentation from your the comments for your. So I don't. I haven't. I haven't stuff. put any comments in there, unfortunately. Okay. So it's just um, got the, like, the, the class stage, That's that's the sort of stuff that I still have to do. Yeah, cool. But it does pull out the class names and the methods and all that sort of stuff and give you the like. For instance, there's I use a delegate for for when you for notifying you that you know a particular key has been uh, has been triggered yeah. and that sort of stuff. So uh, it pulls all that out and lays it all out. And so it's it's uh it's actually makes it much more useful for people who are going to be. Uh, who who are going to be you know utilizing this or or adding to this or anything like that? Yeah. And so all it means is now that uh, when I as I add to it in future, all I need to do is do the you know the commenting that that you know creates the documentation as you mm-hmm. would if you were using a uh, a, a documentation generator. Mm-hmm. I think it uses Apple Docs to generate the documentation. So I I don't know. Yeah, I've explored automatically generating documentation from source code a couple of times, and I've looked at Doxygen. Which is a yep. a separate command line tool for generating documentation, like for a range of different programming languages. Um, and then you can get Doxygen, use Doxygen to generate the doc set uh, documentation file format that Xcode uses. And so you can run Doxygen across uh, an open source project or a code library you're writing, um, and it will generate a doc set that you can then um, include with that library if you distribute it or um, Include yourself in your own uh, set of documentation that Xcode Organizer uh, displays, but it's kind of fiddly and not really nice. So I kind of like the sound of this because it sounds like it maybe it's automating some of this stuff and bringing it together in one spot. Yeah, well, it pulls it pulls a whole bunch of different stuff. So the only other the only other actual uh, library that I even bothered to look at was AF Networking, which does have its own documentation, so it's all correctly uh, mm-hmm. set up to to be documented, um, and. Yeah, it pulls in it, like it pulls in and has the same interface and everything like that. But I particularly so like the idea that it's getting it straight from GitHub as well, so yeah. you don't have to. It doesn't require every developer to maintain their own build. Like I had to set up Doxygen to run as part of the build process, right? So right. When, when you build your library, it creates the um, whatever format you're distributing your library in, which is probably a topic for another day. Whether you're using a dot a statically linked library if you're using a dot framework or right. bundle. Um, anyway, in addition to creating that, you'd have to have some step in your build workflow that would, um, you know, run Doxygen to create the doc set and stick it somewhere. Uh, whereas it sounds like this doesn't require that so that you, no. know, you can... Um, it, it pulls it from GitHub, yeah. uh, pulls all the different versions. Like, so if you're using semantic versioning the way that, uh, that CocoaPods allows you to, uh, it will pull that, like the, each of the different versions and document... Uh, and provide the documentation for those, uh, so that if you're using a specific version in your in your code, you can uh, refer to the documentation for that. Nice. So now all check it out. now all we need is for for Dash to support it, and I'll be I'll be 100 percent right. happy because then I'll be able to option click on uh, on those class names, and yeah. they'll show up in the in Dash's version. Because currently all it does is it does a search for, and this is this is one of the fall downs of Dash is that if you click on a, a, like option click on a uh, something that it doesn't recognize. So, for instance, you know, AF networking class or something like that. Yeah. Um, 
it will do a it will do a web search for Hang that. On. Although I think AF networking distribute their doc set. So if you option click on one, yeah. So I don't think, but I don't think it's available in Dash. Ah, oh, okay. right. So right, yeah. uh, if you option click on it and you pull it up in Dash, what it does is it does a web search for iOS AF networking. Right. Yeah. Um, and this becomes a problem when, for instance, you're using Nimbus. Um, because what I've found is that if you search, if you do a Google search for iOS and then a Nimbus class, it won't actually pull it up. If you remove the iOS from the from the beginning of it, it will pull it up and it'll be the first result. So, uh, yeah, there are there are downsides to using uh, using these plugins, yeah. and you just it depends on what is working for you. But yeah, Coco Docs, check it out. Awesome, we'll do. Anyway, we are well and truly done for the day. That's uh, that's good. So, uh, if if any of you guys are interested in uh, reading up on the things that we've talked about today, all the different things, then you can do that. We provide show notes for that on the internet. Uh, so just head to our website, mobilecouch.co forward slash six. And if you want to contact us and tell us about uh, what plugins you like to use or if you uh, have had any kind of accessibility uh, experience and want to, want to share, share a story about that, then we would love to, uh, love to hear from you. Uh, you. All you need to do is jump onto our website, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact, fill out the form, send us an email. We, we love to hear from you guys. Uh, you can also t- talk to us individually on Twitter. And app.net. So, Jake McMullen is J McMullen, J M A C M U L L I N. Caleb is T H R S N, Thurston. And I am at Jelly Bean Soup on Twitter or just Jelly on app.net. Speak to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you in another couple of weeks. <laughs>